Hi, readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. Janice Kaplan is the author or co-author of 14 books, including the New York Times bestsellers, The Gratitude Diaries, and I'll See You Again. In her latest book, The Genius of Women, Janice asks the question, why do 90% of Americans believe that geniuses are almost always men? She explores the powerful forces that have rigged the system and celebrates the women geniuses past and present who have triumphed anyway. Now let's join author Janice Kaplan in conversation with her editor, Jill Schwartzman. Hi, Janice. It's so great to talk to you today. I just have been thinking about you so much. And I guess my first question is just, how are you? How are you doing? Well, it's great to see you, Jill. And, you know, um, this is a great time to have been thinking about gratitude again. Uh, it's, a, it's a nice mindset for these days. I, I completely agree. Uh, I have been so lucky that we have been working together for, gosh, it must be six or seven years now, something like that. It's been over so many years. And your book, which I know we're going to talk about in a minute, The Gratitude Diaries, has had such a great impact in my life ever since then. But especially in the last few months when we've all had to reexamine our lives a little bit, I just have thought so much about gratitude and how it can make you think and feel differently about even the most challenging times in your life. So thank you for writing it as well as your other books. And I'm so happy we have a chance to to talk about it today. Um, so tell me just a little bit about where you are in terms of your life and what's going on with you right now. Well, I had the opportunity to do a podcast from the Gratitude Diaries. So as you know, uh, you were wonderful in uh, being my editor over these years. And it's such a great joy to work together with you. And I think we uh, pretty much started with the Gratitude Diaries, which came out a few years ago now and um, has continued to be a joy and a pleasure to get to talk about it all over the country. And then when iHeartMedia came and asked about doing this podcast, as I said, I get to think about gratitude all over again right now. So I've been I've been doing a lot on that. And of course, our most recent book together, The Genius of Women, came out just before the pandemic. And I got in a couple of weeks of a fun book tour on that um, and have continued to do a lot of uh, virtual events about the genius of women. So it's been nice. Yes, yes. I really, really want to talk about the genius of women later because I think the two go together so well, uh, appreciating things about your own life, appreciating other people, and just the things that you are able to see and observe in the world once you open your eyes to the good things that surround you. But let's go back to the book for a little while. Will you tell me what first inspired you to write The Gratitude Diaries? Sure. You know, I had just left as editor-in-chief of Parade, and um, I was asked by a large foundation to do a national survey on gratitude. And the results started coming in. And as you know, they were amazing. We had something like 90 or 95% of people said that they thought grateful people were happier. And then we asked people, Do you, are you grateful for family and friends? And again, we had 90, 95% of people saying absolutely grateful for family and friends. And then we asked, do you express gratitude? And then the numbers plunged and all of a sudden it was less than half of people said that they expressed gratitude. So <clears throat> I started getting to talk about the gratitude gap in America and going on television shows and being on the Today Show and talking about the gratitude gap. And then I st suddenly started realizing, I talk about it in the book, of course, about being at a New Year's Eve party and suddenly realizing that I was as guilty of that as anybody else. And I challenged myself at that point to see what would happen if I actually did try to spend a year living more gratefully. And um, 
everything that we did together, Jill, after that came from that. Yes. No, I love that so much. And <laughs> one thing I really um, love to hear about, and I know that this is something you've shared with many audiences who you've been giving these talks to both in person and, you know, virtually more recently. Um, but you said that the year that you wrote the Gratitude Diaries was one of the best you ever had. Why do you think that was? And can you tell us, you know, a couple of highlights? Sure. Well, nothing extraordinary happened that year. And I think that's the most important thing to say. I didn't, it's not that I won the lottery that year. And so it ended up being this, this amazing year. It was a perfectly ordinary year, but that I was looking at every event and every day from a perspective of gratitude. And I was looking at everything that happened every day and thinking, how can I appreciate this? How can I look at the positive about this? How can I not be negative about it, but find something great to think and write about it? And as soon as you do that, your entire perspective on life changes. And, and you just, the, the idea that it's not events that make us happy or not, but how we look at them just came so real and true to me during that year. And so for me, being able to live a whole year of gratitude was just really a joy every day. And it's something that I've tried to maintain as much as I can. And of course, it's hard for all of us to do that. And I, you know, I always thank you for having given me that great gift of getting to do that year. Um, but I think that hopefully it will inspire other people also to say, this is in my control. And there are a lot of things that feel like they're not in my control and more and right. more right now, yeah. lots of That's things that feel out of our control, but your attitude, your perspective, how you look at events is always under your control. And but one cool. example I've always thought was particularly good and one that I have tried to use with, I've used with success in my own life and my own marriage is how, um, how you can be more grateful to your partner. Can you give us some specific examples about what the research you found and what you and Ron actually did in practice? Yeah, well, we just started Wait, very- I just want to interrupt you for one second um, that I think you should tell us a little bit about your husband too, because I think he, knowing the two of you as people just makes the whole experience a little bit more fun. <laughs> well, my husband, I always say, is a very, very nice man. And that we have also been married a very, very long time. And um, what I discovered is that you stop noticing each other. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, that very first month I decided, as you know, Jill, I decided that each month I was going to focus on something different. And I decided that very first month I was going to be more grateful to my husband. And it was amazing that very first weekend that I do it, I did it. I often tell the story that we were driving up to our house in Connecticut and, and we arrived and I hadn't yet told him what my project was. And we arrived and we pulled into the house and I said, honey, thank you for driving. And he yeah. said, I always drive. And I said, yeah, I know you always drive, but it's snowing and it's dark and I don't like to drive. So thank you. And then over the course, he sort of looked at me oddly, but he didn't say anything. And then over the course of that weekend, I kept thanking him for things that he probably always does anyway, you know, fixing something, helping me with a storyline, whatever it may have been. I just kept thanking him. And again, he didn't say much, but then it came to be Sunday night and we were having dinner. And he looked at me and he said, honey, thank you for cooking. And, you know, of course I said, I always cook. Um, but, but then I told him what I was doing and we realized that just in that one weekend, 
the vibe between us had had started to change. And as you know, when I went back and I spoke to neurologists and psychologists about this to see if I was crazy or if there was actually any research for this, it turns out that there is, that expressing thanks, expressing appreciation to your spouse, being positive to your partner actually changes some of the neural circuits in the brain and act those that, that uh, lead to connectedness. And so by doing that, you do not only feel more connected to your partner, but you actually have a neurological change that, that I think that's that. so wonderful and, and so inspiring. Um, and now I have to ask as a follow-up question though, that was a couple of years ago. So it's how has that continued to work? Is it something that you continue to remember to do? You know, as I said in the book, I had planned to be grateful to my husband for a month. That seemed like it would be more than enough. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but it worked out so well that I stayed grateful for that whole year. And now it's, you know, these several years later. And um, as with any marriage, you have ups and downs. But But that ability to go back and know that we can be grateful to each other and we can stop and appreciate each other has continued to change our marriage and has continued to be this wonderful overlay of appreciation and happiness um, that we have for each other. And, you know, my husband is also the one who, if I turn negative, he will turn to me and say, you know, hey, Ms. Gratitude, are, are you sure that's what you want to say? <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's nice to have those reminders. And look, Jill, I think we all know that we know how to make our spouses or partners happy, right? We know what we can say that's going to make them happy, and we know what we can say that's going to make them not. And, and just deciding that you're going to, to have that positive attitude is really important. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about how regularly it needs to be done, that reminds me of something else that you said in the book, where when you were keeping your gratitude journal, I think it was three things every night you wrote down that made you grateful. Is that right? At the time, yes. And then you say by the end of the year, you were not quite as regular about it, but that the habit and the idea stuck enough so that it became part of your life, even if it wasn't as structured as it was originally. And I found that really inspiring as well. The fact that, you know, it's not you're doing exi exactly the same thing for the rest of your life, but it's something that can grow and change and you can be flexible with. Right. I think it's very much teaching yourself the art of reframing and teaching yourself the art of being in a terrible mood, being very grumpy about something. And then sometimes I actually physically stop in, in the middle of the street. And I think, wait a minute, turn it around, look at it from a different perspective. How do you want to think of that differently? One thing that I sometimes uh, suggest to people is writing a gratitude journal can sound like a chore. You know, I'm a writer, I think it's a great idea, but for people who aren't, it can sound like a chore. And I sometimes suggest that people keep a scrap of paper next to their bed and write down one thing at night, just a couple of words that made them grateful that day. And the way that works is that knowing you have that silly piece of paper next to your bed changes your perspective on the whole day. Because you, you know, at some point in the day, it gets to be, let's say it gets to be four o'clock in the afternoon, you've been having a terrible day. And suddenly you remember that you have that piece of paper there and you actually stop and you think, all right, what am I possibly going to write? And maybe you look around and you go, well, it's a beautiful day. There's yeah. some flowers blooming. I'm yeah. getting to talk to my editor. There, yeah. There's something. <laughs> and sometimes I think it happens even in the moment too. You know, as you know, I have a five-year-old son named Owen, who is a delight and reframing 
has given me a lot of opportunities to think about the time that we've all been working, you know, working from home, some might say stuck from home in the last few months, how having a five-year-old is both um, challenging, but also, you know, a great blessing to get to spend this time together. So, um, but I sometimes think about that piece of paper and I think that the moment that we're having, how can I reframe this not as, oh my gosh, I can't believe I haven't finished, you know, sending all my emails yet and I have to cook dinner and think that, you know, this, everything that's going on in the world right now has caused me to find a great app on an, on Owen's iPad that he and, it, and my mother, his grandmother can read books to each other. Mm-hmm. And that's something that had we wouldn't have we wouldn't have sought that out if it wasn't for the pandemic because of the world we're in right now i had to find different ways to connect with family members and how that is something that i can not only do in my life but having a little piece of paper reminds me both to seek something out and to record it so it's having the tangible evidence of gratitude that makes me really try hard to do it every day. So I I thank you for that tip. It's so important to do that with children because you do get so caught in the moment sometimes and you get overwhelmed and there's a lot going on and to be able to stop and take that step back makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that speaking of tangible, um, uh, tangible ways to express gratitude, let's talk about gratitude in the workplace for just a moment. There's a story from the book that I always loved about thank you notes. Do you want to share that with everyone? Oh, sure. That was the CEO of Campbell Soup. Is exactly, that yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I found when I was writing the book that so many of the CEOs that I interviewed had that sort of 1950s madman perspective of, you know, we don't have to say thank you. We say thank you with a paycheck. Yeah. And I, you know, my response, or at least to my, in my own head was, <laughs> no, no, you say we're paying you with a paycheck. You yeah. say thank you with thank you. And there's been so much research showing that people are motivated by appreciation that we all like to get paid. Absolutely, that's important, but we also want to be appreciated. And uh, there was one CEO who I spoke to, Doug Conant, who had been the CEO of Campbell's Soup. And at the time that he was there, he wrote um, something like five or six handwritten thank you notes every single day. And in the course of the time that he was at Campbell's, he he told me that he wrote something like 30,000 handwritten thank you notes, uh, which is just crazy. but he just felt that turning the culture of that company around mm-hmm. is really important. And of course, when the CEO does it, then everybody else starts to do yeah. it. Yeah. And the twist on that story was that at some point towards the end of his tenure, uh, Doug was in a terrible car accident on the New Jersey. Oh, I don't think I knew that. And I think it's in the book. And he and he was yeah. almost he was almost yeah. killed. Yeah. And um, his wife would come in every day and start reading to him the letters and emails that were coming in from around the country. And they were, and around the world. And they all said things like, you know, dear dear Mr. Conant, you don't know me, but five years ago, you sent me a handwritten thank you note. Aww. And it meant so much to me that we, it meant so much to our family that we put it up on the refrigerator and it's been there ever since. And so now you feel like a part of our family. And now, now that you're in trouble, you have our thoughts and prayers. Oh, yes, I love that. Yeah, I was so moved by that story because it's not why he had done it. It's not why he had written those thank you notes, but it just shows that when you put gratitude into the world, it comes back. And uh, it is a lovely circle of giving and getting. That's so wonderful. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about one other idea that has really stayed with me, which is that one way of getting a grateful perspective is to think about how you'll feel a year from now. Can you tell me more about how, how that works? 
Sure. I think, as we were just talking about with your son, yeah. Owen, it's very easy to get caught up in the moment and to get caught up in the, the things that have gone wrong um, or the things that are worrying you. And I think sometimes if you take a step back, you know, Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in Behavioral Psychology, refers to it as the experiencing self and the remembering self. And the experiencing self is the person who is there right now, who is, you know, trying to get Owen to do whatever he needs to do. <laughs> and the remembering self is the person who a year from now is going to look back and go, oh, remember that wonderful day we had together? And remember how sweet it was that you were reading books with my mom. Yeah. And um, if we can take that perspective now, if we can try to be the remembering self a little bit while we're in the midst of the experience, then we can kind of get rid of some of those rough edges and look at the things that really matter, which tends to be the things that uh, that make us happy. And then we don't have to have gratitude in the rearview mirror. We can have it uh, while we're actually experiencing it. And it's a little bit about how the piece of paper works as well, right? That you're remembering yourself. You can think about what you'll appreciate and what you've done 24 hours later. You can think about a year later that this is a, a lens that you can put on your experiences in, in so many ways, which I think is, is, is so exciting and inspiring. Yeah. Um, I next wanted to ask you more about your daily podcast, which I have been enjoying so much. Your podcast with iHeartMedia, which is also called The Gratitude Diaries. You've been giving daily tips to listeners. And what have some of your favorite episodes been so far? Well, Jill, you know, as you know from, from the book, I like to do research on everything. Um, so I, it's been exciting for me to be able to expand from the book uh, too, but a couple, and, and to come up with new ideas and, and new approaches. But I did one on um, Sibling Appreciation Day, which may I say is a holiday that I completely made up and I didn't <laughs> know that I had made that up. But I got so many responses from listeners saying, uh, thanking me for that and saying, I forwarded this to my, uh, to my sister or brother and uh, one person actually joked that I, that it had caused a problem because he was now fighting with his sister because she hadn't sent him a thank you note for Sibling Appreciation Day. <laughs> I assume that was a joke. Um, and, uh, you know, I did one similarly on friends and appreciating friends. And I think so often we just assume that people know how we feel. And I think mm -hmm. part of the importance of gratitude is opening yourself up and, uh, and appreciating people and saying it to them, you know, back where we started with the book, expressing that gratitude to them, whether yeah. it's a sibling or a friend yeah. or your editor. <laughs> and thank you for that. Um, so your, your tip one day was to discover how gratitude can make you smarter. And of course, that ties into your next, your latest book for Dutton, The Genius of Women. Can you tell us more about the connection between those two books? Sure. Well, when I did The Genius of Women, uh, it was such a wonderful experience to do that and to get to talk to all of these amazing women who were doing such extraordinary work now and who were doing such extraordinary work in history and hadn't always been noticed. The definition of a genius um, is that you do something unusual and that you're, there aren't other people like you. But I spoke to so many genius women that I was able to find certain traits that they have had in common. And maybe because, Jill, I had written the Gratitude Diaries and I looked for positivity, um, one of the things that I did find was that this was one of the most positive group of people I had ever met. And despite all of the obstacles that these women had faced, they maintained a positive attitude and sometimes they just didn't even notice the obstacles until they were in a position where they could do something about it. And so I came to think that being positive 
actually helps allow you to to meet your own potential and and to do positive to, to do the things that you want to um, if you're brilliant in a particular field there are always going to be people trying to stop you uh, i spoke to so many women in the sciences who you know people told them that they were never going to be able to achieve what they thought they could and when they were able to stop and say that's all right i think i'm right and i'm going to continue to try uh, that led that led to great achievements, and so um, I do think that uh, that there is a great tie in between the books that way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I did notice that thread and that theme in the Genius of Women that there were so many women who, especially when it came to a sexist environment in the sciences and music and all of these different fields, that they would often say when I was studying, when I was coming up, when I was in graduate school, I just didn't think about sexism. I didn't think about how I compared to other people. I just forged on ahead. So they were taking this very um, positive attitude, as you were saying, but later their perspective really shifted and they started feeling grateful for the people who let them get where they are, but they also started seeing room for improvement, let's just say. Um, and I did think that was such a fascinating theme. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That uh, make the changes when you're in the position where you can make them. And again, I saw there was one of, one of the women who became my personal hero was Frances Arnold, who won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry a couple of years ago, and who everybody was when she was starting out um, and she had a completely new way of developing uh, proteins in the lab and everybody was telling her that she couldn't do it and she just wouldn't be stopped. She just continued on and uh, won the Nobel Prize. Um, another woman I interviewed, Fei-Fei Li, who's one of the great world's experts in artificial intelligence, and she doesn't have quite that same dynamic personality that Frances Arnold does. She's a much quieter, more reserved young woman, but it was the same attitude. Uh, she's taught computers how to see. And um, again, and, and it was absolutely revolutionary, and it's something that everybody uses now. And she's only in her 40s at this point, but when she was starting out 10 or 15 years ago, again, people were trying to stop her. And I said, how did you have the courage to go on? And she said, well, I just thought I was right. And if I wasn't right, what difference does it make? I, I believe in myself now. And if I wasn't right, I would try something else. And I just think that that ability allows women and men and anybody uh, to be able to do so much more and to be able to be so much more original. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I want to say about both of your books and about all of your books is they just always make me feel better about the world, about what I'm reading. They just always give me such great inspiration and optimism for the future. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank I'm very you. grateful all the time. Um, but the next thing that I wanted to ask you, speaking of other books, is what are you reading? What's exciting you right now? Well, you know, after reading the uh, writing, <laughs> The Genius of Women, and I do read it also, um, I, I have been so fascinated by women who have achieved and what are the different things that allow women to achieve uh, at different times and in different places. And so I've actually been reading a lot of historical fiction about strong women. And I read, uh, they're not new books, but I reread uh, Lily King's Euphoria, which was based on the Margaret Mead story. And uh, Paula McLean, who wrote The, the Paris Wife, I actually liked her follow-up. Yeah. Yeah. that um, Love and Ruin, which is about Martha Gellhorn, yeah. uh, who, which is the great story of, I think she was Hemingway's fourth wife, but she was a war correspondent in her own right. And 
as with so many women, it was it was a study in how do you be who you are in a world that is sometimes trying to uh, stop you from being that because you're a woman. So I just think there have been so many iterations of great women over the over the centuries that it's uh, it's fun to read about them. Um, I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. Well, thank you. Yes. Well, thank you for this time and for this conversation. It just, you know, again, I am so grateful to have been your editor and I'm so excited about all the things we'll get to talk about in the future, but thank you just for sharing all of this with us. It's a pleasure, Jill, and it's always wonderful to talk to you and get to work with you. One of one of the joys of my ex experience. Well, and, the, and the last thing I'll say is, you know, I have been talking about the Gratitude Diaries for so many years now, and I just think that this podcast is so exciting because um, it gets more people in a different format to experience both the whole of your journey, but also these little bite-sized pieces, which is something that I think we all need a little bit of daily inspiration right now. So thank you one more time. And the pod, just to say the podcasts are short, you know, they're five or six minutes. So it's just a, it's just a bite every day. <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you one more time. Thank you. And now here's an exclusive excerpt from the audiobook, courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. Shortly after I turned nine years old, our family doctor warned my mother that I was reading too much. I remember looking at him completely baffled. Until then, my voracious love of books had been a point of family pride, but now my mother anxiously asked if all the reading was hurting my eyes. No, he said, the eyes were fine, but maybe I should spend some time participating in girlier activities. He worried that my excitement about books set in far-flung places and trumpeting new ideas could have unintended consequences. A girl can get too smart for her own good, he said in a dire tone. Too smart for her own good. My mother nodded. She understood. But I was shocked. To me, it was one of those jolting moments from childhood that stays with you, ringing in your head at the most inconvenient times. I'd like to dismiss the comment as an archaic viewpoint, no longer relevant in a world where a woman superhero movie blasts past a billion dollars at the box office and men are left reeling at the power of Me Too. But that's wishful thinking. Ideas ingrained in a culture for decades, even centuries, don't disappear in the time that it takes for one smart girl to grow up. Too smart for her own good. I've thought about that phrase often now as I've pondered the potential power of women to be geniuses and disrupt standard ideas. I grew up at a time when women's roles were changing, which is true for every woman living now or in the remembered past. Women didn't have the right to vote in America until a hundred years ago, which continues to shock me, and I like to think I would have marched and protested if I lived before then. But maybe not. You get used to stuff. People tell you it's not natural for women to vote or be scientists or painters or mathematicians, and deeply ingrained social expectations fight violently against your own deep sense that this isn't right. I had pure confidence when young, and despite that doctor's statement, it never occurred to me that women couldn't do exactly the same things that men did. I attended an Ivy League college that had previously been all-male and went on to have a great career as a journalist and television producer. I ran one of the biggest magazines in the country and raised, with my husband, two magnificent sons. But along the way, I started to realize just how much of women's potential got lost, ignored, or abandoned, and still does. The details of discrimination have changed over the years. 
Women tennis players earn a lot more than they did when I started my career as a sports reporter. But the bigger issues remain. Being a talented and ambitious woman in any field is still like riding in the Kentucky Derby while someone pulls back on the reins. You know you have power and ability and a great horse to ride. So what is that unseen hand trying to stop you? The French philosopher Simone de Beauvoir explained back in the mid-1900s that men see themselves as the norm, the definition of humanity. And since they posit themselves as the one, women become the other. She called the setup a miraculous bomb for insecure men because even the most mediocre get to feel superior when compared to the women they hold down. Women have often accepted the deal because it comes with potential advantages. In the tumultuous past, man the sovereign could protect you from the rampaging hordes, and in the unequal pay present, man the executive can pay for the nice house you can't afford on your own. You can't afford it yourself because men won't pay you what you're worth, which seems like the definition of a vicious circle. But not everyone buys into the agreement. On some level, my childhood doctor knew that. Being too smart for your own good means you've rejected the pact. You know that men aren't necessarily smarter or more talented, and you're determined to find your own voice and use it. The decision comes with both advantages and risks. Men who feel their position being threatened can be like cornered dogs, and while you can cope with the yapping, you'd like to avoid the more dangerous attacks. Throughout history, women geniuses have taken the risk of being different. They've followed their own path and accepted scorn and derision because they understood, even when others didn't, that being a genius had nothing to do with gender. Looking at genius women from the past, I was awed by both their brilliance and their ability to push forward despite endless barriers. Talking to extraordinary women right now and choosing the geniuses for this book made me aware that the obstacles haven't gone away. Even when talent is a given, you need heaps of temerity and strength to make your mark. Social and cultural pressures determine who we are far beyond the power of any genes or chromosomes. You aren't born a woman genius, you become one. But when the world tries to stop you, how do you prove that you can never be too smart for your own good? Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf. And until next time, this has been Books Connect Us. Thank you.